According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're here for the purpose of growth. Matthew 16 is our text, verses 13 through 20. There are parallels in Mark and Luke. Mark 8, 27 through 30, just four short verses there. And Luke 9, 18 through 21. Again, a four-verse selection. The longest of the developments is Matthew's, and that's where our primary study is coming from. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. We've covered the questions. Who do the people think I am? Who do you think I am? We've covered the uh, issues involved with the statement of I am and the uh, false expectations, the confusion. Some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And uh, every last one of those was incorrect. And so uh, he said, well, who do you say that I am? And this is uh, Simon Peter's uh, shining moment here. And uh, we'll have to take a look at it. So. Before we do, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure each believer priest is equipped with the Holy Spirit. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and for the privilege and blessing that we have in this nation, the freedom to assemble, the opportunity to meet in a public building with a sign out front and an ad in the newspaper, ads on the radio. Father, uh, we're not living in hiding or under fear of uh, government oppression or uh, any other kind of persecution or hostility against us. Father, we thank you for the freedom our land has and, and uh, the recognition that we have the freedom to assemble and the freedom to, uh, to not assemble. Father, uh, to blow it off. And yet, uh, for these brothers and sisters here today, they've made the decision that this is their priority. And I thank you for that. pray that you would reward that volition. Father, uh, bless our time together. Teach us from your word. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We are ready to move into point four, the certainty of Peter. I uh, failed to jot down the uh, slide number on this, so we'll just take a a rough guess that this is going to be slide two and slide three. I'm guessing that that's going to be slide five. Slide six. There we go. The certainty of Peter. If you've uh, missed the previous classes, uh, the website is up and running and flawless and perfect and everything is wonderful. So uh, you can get on there and and download the recent classes and get caught up uh, in terms of points one, two, and three. We really spent the bulk of our time under point three dealing with the confusion of the people. And uh, there's nothing worse, I think, than a little bit of knowledge and the pride that causes a human being to think that he has a whole lot more than he really has. And that really is the the definition of the Pharisees. They had knowledge. They were They were Bible students. Uh, what they didn't have, though, was the Spirit of God guiding them into the truth and giving them the complete divine viewpoint with respect to that which they were studying. And uh, so they had these questions that were up in the air. And they were expecting, ever since Deuteronomy, they were expecting a Moses-like prophet who was going to arise someday. And they were expecting, of course, all along, they were expecting a Christ who would arise someday. And from Isaiah and Malachi, they were expecting Elijah, a forerunner, to arise someday. And so they had these three different expectations uh, for the Moses-like prophet, the forerunner, and the Christ. 
And then they had some debates amongst themselves as far as that Moses-like prophet, whether he would be the same as the forerunner or whether he would be the same as the Christ. That's what we know to be true, that the Moses-like prophet was understood to be the Christ. Um, or whether it was a third character separate from the other two. And, uh, and, and from their vantage point, they really could not know. And, and yet to take your stand arrogantly as if, oh, we know that this is absolutely true, is uh, kind of foolhardy. And, and uh, with hindsight, of course, we can, we can observe that. And I think we ought to take that as an admonishment when we start teaching dogmatically about the tribulation, about the second advent, about the millennial reign of Jesus Christ or the fullness of times. Uh, we can be dogmatic and certain within the realm of what has been revealed. But when we start to venture into some realms where we are drawing conclusions or speculating, and even if they're even if they're sound conclusions, we better at least acknowledge, you know what, these are logical conclusions, and the logic may be uh, faulty based on the incomplete information that we're dealing with. In any event, uh, Peter is not faulty, and Peter is not sketchy. Peter is certain, and he has a certainty to his answer, which we... We'll be looking at here in verse 16 and following, and then the praise that comes to him. So, recognizing that the people are confused, Jesus then says, All right, now who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, Son of the living God, or Son of God, the living one. If you want to take that in a literal word-for-word rendering. Peter's certainty. He says, and we'll, we'll lay out here all three of the gospel accounts, The fullest one there is Matthew's recorded statement. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the fullest answer. As it's recorded in Mark, he replied, Thou art the Christ. And then as he is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, the Christ of God. All three of these, of course, being complementary, not contradictory statements, uh, all summed up in the concluding or in the comprehensive record of the Gospel of Matthew. The Christ the Son of the living God. Literally, though, as I say, Son of God, the living one. And uh, if there are more Hebraisms that are reflected in Matthew's composition, then it might even be preferable to bring out the living aspect of it as a third uh, description. In other words, we would have the Christ as the first description, the uh, Son of God as the second description, and then the living one as a third description. And I think linguistically you can make a good case for that. As it is in our modern English text, we just simply have the Christ, Son of the living God. Now, this uh, statement here contains um, a tremendous amount of doctrine in and of itself if you understand the vocabulary. And if you're solid on the terms, then the terms go a long way to defining what you're talking about. And that's why, by the way, in teaching assemblies, we try to be clear in our terms. And so if we develop a doctrine or develop a concept, in some cases we can give it a title, we can give it a term, and, uh, and then for those that have had the teaching, those that know what the significance is, you don't have to reteach that concept over and over and over and over again. For example, I think when Colonel Thiem taught confession of sin and forsaking sin and, you know, and uh, confession and moving on and so forth, and he, he just gave it the name rebound and said, you know, if you learn that term and use that term, then that saves you a lot of redundant statements and reteaching concepts and so forth. Well, the Christ is one of those titles. Because the Christ, the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, the term Messiah has a wealth of teaching, in fact, the entire Old Testament behind it. And if you're solid 
on what the Old Testament expectations are, then the term Christ means a lot. But if you're oblivious and ignorant to the Old Testament teaching on the Christ, then you can be befuddled and you can be led into false teaching. And certainly every cult in the world that abuses the term Christ or Islam abuses the term Christ and other uh, religions abuse the term Christ, then, uh, then you end up in confusion because you're not defining your terms. So let's define our terms. Under point B, we look at Messiah, realizing that Messiah is a title. It is a transliteration. It is not a translation. In the Hebrew, it's Mashiach. And I did not provide a transliteration there. I just simply gave the Hebrew text. So let me transliterate it for you. From right to left, you would start with an M, and then an A, and then an SH, I, Y, and then a little A, like a superscript A, CH. M-A-S-H-I-Y-A-C-H. It would almost look like Mashiach at that point. But what is a Mashiach? What is a Mashiach? Well, what's the verb? The verb Mashiach means to smear or to anoint. Literally, to smear with the anointing oil. Not, uh, not our English idea of smearing, you know, like if somebody smears your name or... Uh, uh, a slanderous letter gets written where you're just maybe you're smeared in the press or you're smeared in the newspapers. No, it's not a it's not a uh, sin of the tongue uh, wrong kind of smearing, but it's the right kind of smearing that is the anointing where you take the oil and you smear the oil, you anoint the oil, and by smearing you are uh, sanctifying in the concept there. So Mashiach is. The, uh, the subject of the activity, whereas mashach then is the verb. So this is somebody who has been smeared, somebody who has been anointed, the anointed one, if you want to define it. It is not the Savior. It only becomes the Savior if you understand that only the anointed one is qualified to save. And because he is the anointed one, he's qualified to save. And because he went to the cross, he did save. But Messiah is not a synonym for Savior. It's used widely that way. They talk about, oh, you know, a great football player gets drafted and, and now their hopes are set on, you know, Vince Young is going to be the Messiah for the Tennessee Titans or what, what have you. See, they use the term Messiah there as a synonym for Savior. And Messiah is not a Savior. Messiah is an anointed one. In a sense, you and I are Messiahs. Because as church-age believer priests, we have the anointing of God the Holy Spirit. And we are in Christ. We are in Messiah. We are Messiahs. We usually don't express it that way, but strictly on a vocabulary basis, you and I, if you are a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you are a Messiah. Now, are you going to save anybody? No. You're not going to go to the cross and die for anybody's sins. See, so a Messiah is not a Savior, a Messiah is an anointed one. And we have an anointing for the purpose he anointed us for, and we're going to accomplish that purpose. Christ had the anointing, the ultimate anointing. We might be Christ's, he was the Christ, when it comes right down to it. Let's look at some of the terms here, or some of the places where Messiah is used. The verb is used everywhere, and the, but the noun is used in a handful of places that I think are pretty clear so let's look at the 2 Samuel 23, 1. And this will help us to fix in our eyes the expectations for what they had in terms of the Messiah. Now, 
he had been promised going all the way back to Genesis 3. He was not called the Messiah in Genesis 3. He was called the seed of the woman in Genesis 3. And the seed of the woman was going to crush the serpent's head. And there's a lot of expectations for the coming one. But strictly where he's spoken of as a Mashiach, we have other expectations that get brought into it as well. So if we look at 2 Samuel 23, these are the last words of David. How would you like to have your final deathbed testimony recorded in Scripture for all eternity? Well, David had that. David, the son of Jesse, declares. And then it restates his titles here. So David, the son of Jesse, declares, and then the title restatements, the man who was raised on high declares. What a title. He had tremendous authority. Not because he earned it, not because he deserved it. Remember, he exalts the humble. If David had promoted himself, he would have been brought low, like, like King Saul. The man who was raised on high declares. Notice the next title. The anointed, the Messiah of the God of Jacob. And then finally, the sweet psalmist of Israel. These are David's titles. All right, The sweet psalmist of Israel wrote at least half of the psalms in the book of Psalms. Probably more. All right, But 75, certainly, according to the Hebrew inscriptions. Possibly more. Alright, so these are all his titles. Notice that third title, though. The Christ. The Messiah. HaMashiach of God. The anointed of the God of Jacob. Now, how was he anointed? We're going to see the different realms of things and people and offices that received anointings. We'll see them coming up. He actually had a double anointing. Because he was anointed as a boy years before he ever became king. And kings were expected to be anointed. And then he was anointed again when he became king, king over Judah. He was anointed a third time when he became king over all Israel. All right, So he had at least a triple anointing. But his first anointing as a boy, designated that he would be the king someday, also ushered him into uh, a second realm where anointing was common, and that was in the prophetic office, where prophets were anointed. David was a, a prophet by gift, a king in office, and uh, served as a prophet-king example in terms of a type of Christ. So we'll, uh, we'll be spelling all that out for you here shortly. So there's a good example for you. The Christ of God, the anointed of the God of Jacob. Psalm 45, 7, another good example. And there's one that's not on this list I'm going to give you as well, but Psalm 45, 7. Popped into my head just now, and it's one that popped into my head earlier, and I intended to get it on the slide, and I never did. Psalm 45, 7. Psalm 45 is a Davidic psalm, and it's looking forward. It's a kingly song, where he's celebrating the king's marriage. Now, David, of course, could write this, celebrating his marriage, um, and yet... When you understand David as a type of Christ, if the king is celebrating his marriage, then who's the bride? Now, don't carry that too far, of course, because the church is a mystery. The church is unrevealed. The church is, un, is not unfolded in the Old Testament. However, with hindsight, as church-age believers, we can go back to Psalm 45 and see the typology of David. We can see the shadow doctrine being taught. And we can see, okay, here's King David celebrating his marriage. If David was a type of Christ, then who's this bride typology representing? Well, obviously the church in uh, some different applications. So 
It's a, it's a wonderful song here, and you'll note he uh, has to put his sword on and go to war. And uh, when Christ retrieves his bride, then uh, very shortly after that, he's uh, dressing for battle and going forth to Armageddon. He's going to conquer and gain his kingdom. Uh, verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice who's ruling. God is ruling. They have an expectation of the coming Messiah, but that coming Messiah is recognized as being God, Elohim. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of, of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Remember, this all goes into Judah, and the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes, until the one to whom it belongs arises. Verse 7, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. That's a description of David. And every godly king that followed David, Jehoshaphat and Joash and Josiah and Hezekiah, the good kings of Judah, imitated that. They were like David their father. They loved righteousness. They hated wickedness. And yet, the ultimate one that fulfills this is Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, who fulfilled this with every moment of every day in, in perfect entirety throughout his life. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God. Notice, this is speaking to God in the vocative. Therefore, God, your God. All right? And clearly, if you understand Trinity, you understand God the Son with reference to God the Father there. We don't have an issue with that. So, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. Mashach. You are the Mashiach, the Messiah. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia and out of ivory palaces. Stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. That the bride is righteous and perfect when he is seated on that throne. Our judgment seat has to precede second advent for so many other reasons, but this passage Spells that out as well. All right. Daniel 9.25. Daniel 9.25. If uh, Peter had a handle on this, then he would not have taken the Lord aside privately and said, Far be it, Lord, this should never happen to you. Because Jesus, very shortly here, will start to explain to his disciples, Stop announcing the kingdom. Stop proclaiming me as the Messiah. The Messiah must be lifted up and killed and raised on the third day. And Peter very quickly is going to say, oh, no, 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 Lord, that should never happen to you. In which case, Peter receives the opposite message from, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, and he receives the very harmful message and the, the pride, uh, humbling message of, uh, get behind me, Satan. But in Daniel 9.25, we're told, here's Mashiach. The prince. And he is going to come on the scene after seven weeks and 62 weeks. That is, after 69 periods of seven years from the issuing of a decree. And this spells out that with the issuing of the decree there in 444 B.C., and we've done the math on this in our Daniel series, but at this point of time, Messiah the prince, notice, will be cut off. Verse 26 says, after the 62 weeks, which is after the 7, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Now, that's not a very popular message. 
You can expect through the centuries as Jewish rabbis and, and Pharisees and, and Sadducees and various teachers, scribes and lawyers and so forth, they're teaching the Bible about this coming Messiah. They're going to teach the happy messages, right? The messages of conquering and the messages of putting on your sword and, and the, the queen and gold of Ophir and all this other stuff and, and having dominion over the Gentiles. Those are the happy messages. Yeah, preach on, Rabbi. But cut off and have nothing, right? Or like a lamb before his shearers is silent, he goes to the slaughter in Isaiah 53. Or, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me in Psalm 22? You know, the suffering Messiah was a stumbling block. It was a problem. And um, people didn't want to hear about it. Teachers didn't want to teach it. Teachers didn't want to study it. Greatly neglected throughout the centuries leading up to the first advent of Jesus Christ. And it was, in particular, a huge stumbling block. We, we get that out of 1 Peter, where uh, we're told that the prophets of old made careful search and inquiry. And, uh, and they weren't sloppy about it, but they were confused. And they said that we can't... in. Uh, 1 Peter 1.10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Messiah and the glories to follow. The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And it was a huge problem to Old Testament prophets. What's it going to be? Is, is our Christ going to suffer? Is our Christ going to be glorified? And because they allowed themselves to fall into the either-or mentality, you draw a line in the sand, you choose sides, and you encamp, right? And you've got the suffering camp, not very popular, not very widespread, and you've got the glorified camp, very popular, very widespread, in fact, dominant to the point where the other side wanted to act like those verses weren't even in their Bible. And they're trapped by this either-or mentality. How about a both-and perspective? Because if God said it, it's going to happen. And if He said both, both are going to happen. He is both going to suffer and He's going to reign. Now, of course, you and I understand first advent, second advent, separated by 2,000 or more years. That's only because, not because we're so smart, but because we have an extra testament to learn from and because we're in between the two events. We have that perspective, see. It's like if, if you don't have the depth perception of events, if everything's all in front of you, for example. Uh, you know, Beverly's right up here and Cliff's behind her. And uh, because of Beverly and the chair and whatever else, I, I can't see what's on Cliff's lap. You know, maybe it's a notebook, maybe it's a Bible, maybe it's, a, it's, a, it's an iPod, it's a Game Boy, he's playing video games. I don't know what he's doing. But if I was to walk off this platform and walk over there and actually physically stand in between Beverly and Cliff, now I'm right there and I can see what's sitting on his lap. Okay? That's where we are. That's where we are. We're in between first advent and second advent. And all these Old Testament prophets that were looking forward, they saw the sufferings and the glory and it wasn't exactly clear. Purposely so. All right, so... A study here in uh, Daniel 9 would have been very helpful for Peter. Uh, that uh, He would have recognized that uh, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And that's consistent with Jesus who said, I've got to be lifted up and crucified and raised again on the third day.
If Peter would have had a handle on that, he would not have taken him aside and said, Far be it, Lord, this should never happen to you. All right, the last one on the screen then is Isaiah 45.1. Isaiah, I've got to back up from Daniel to Isaiah. And this is an interesting situation because this is with reference to a Gentile. Understanding that during the stewardship of Israel, Israel, Jewish people had the stewardship. Jewish people were vested with anointed office. Jewish people were called to be prophets, priests, and kings. Jewish people were the, the plan and program was uh, uh, distributed through. However, the throne of David has been set aside. The temple has been burned. Egypt or uh, Israel has been taken into captivity into Babylon. The God's plan for Israel is not over, but Israel is under divine discipline, no longer functioning under positive volition as the steward. And look who he lifts up. He lifts up a Gentile, a Gentile king. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his Christ, to Cyrus, his Messiah, to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand. And keep in mind that Isaiah spoke of this by name centuries before Cyrus was born. Centuries. This, uh, by the way, the, the Bible haters hate this. Absolutely hate this. And so they've come up with a theory that says, oh, this was not Isaiah. This was Deutero-Isaiah, Trito-Isaiah. This was, a, this was a, a later guy, a Maccabean-era guy, who posed as Isaiah after the fact. Because otherwise, how did he know the name Cyrus? So their unbelieving mind says this must have been written afterwards. It's the only way they would have known the name Cyrus. Realize how stupid that is? First of all, they're delving into an assumption that God can't predict the future, right? That's their first assumption. Second assumption is that God didn't write the Bible, right? Um, and if you want a, a quick and easy answer to that, say, okay, he couldn't handle naming a Persian king 200 years prior, but he spoke about a virgin having a baby 700 years prior. Right? Or are you going to say that, uh, that Isaiah 7 was written after the virgin had a baby? After the fact? Or was it a lucky guess? So, anyway, uh, you can pretty well spot the Bible haters for who they are and expose their, uh, their prejudice right up front. I don't have any problem with Cyrus being named 200 years ahead of time. That's less impressive than, uh, than the virgin 700 years ahead of time. And so many other issues in the book of Isaiah. And... I also think that God, in his sense of humor and in his wisdom, deliberately had Jesus Christ quote from Isaiah, knowing that in the 19th century, these higher criticism German know-it-alls were going to create this anti-Christian theory of proto-Isaiah, deutero-Isaiah, and trito-Isaiah, and, and in their scholarship come up with this theory that there were these three authors of Isaiah, because... Jesus Christ actually quoted from all three of these supposed sections and claimed Isaiah for the author of all three of them. <laughs> so I kind of like that. All right. Isaiah 45.1, Thus says the Lord, thus says Jehovah, Yahweh, to Cyrus, his Messiah. And notice, whom I have taken by the right hand. Now, he's not the Messiah that's going to go to the cross. He's not the Messiah that's going to take away the sin of the world. He's not the ultimate Messiah, but he is 
the Messiah for this purpose, to subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that uh, gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through the iron bars. Now, Christ is going to have a forerunner to make the way smooth. Uh, but Cyrus will have Yahweh himself as the forerunner to make the way smooth. And he's doing this not because Cyrus deserves it. Um, but it's Yahweh, the God of Israel, who calls Cyrus, the Gentile, by name. And he does so for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one. So uh, Cyrus becomes a Christ, a tool, an anointed one in the hands of God. All right. The one I did not put on the screen is Ezekiel 28. Uh, another example of Messiah that applies to Satan prior to his fall. And it's in Ezekiel 28:14. With an individual being described as being in Eden, the garden of God. Now, who do we know was in Eden? Adam was in Eden. Eve was in Eden. Satan was in Eden. That's right. But the description here, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Well, I guess we're kind of uh, ambiguous there still. I think Adam and Eve were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty in the day that they were uh, created. But then this other description in verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Now, when I look at Genesis and I see Eden on Adam's earth, I see birds and animals and fish, and they had fur and feathers and scales. But this creature had ruby, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, lapis lazuli, turquoise, emerald, gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets. That was quite a creation. That was quite a creation. The, the glory of this dragon when this dragon was fashioned. In the uh, Someday I'm going to find an artist and commission an artist to paint a uh, glorious, glorious dragon. I like dragon artwork anyway, but uh, a glorious dragon. And instead of scales, uh, he'll have scales, but these will be the scales in these colors. And, the, of course, the gems match up with the priestly garment, the high priest uh, ephod. And uh, so forth. Now notice, on the day you were created, they were prepared. Now again, if you talk about created beings, Adam and Eve were created, but every human being since then was born rather than created. Now here's a created being. What kind of being is it? Well, we're told it was a cherub. The cherubim we know to be the angels. The guardian angels, the protection angels that overshadow the Ark of the Covenant, that guard the way to the Tree of Life, or that every time we find cherubim, they have a Secret Service protective function. And it says in verse 14, you are the Christ cherub. You are the Messiah cherub. You are the Mashiach, the anointed cherub, who guards, who covers. And I placed you there on the holy mountain of God, walking in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. There is no human being other than Adam and Eve that were created blameless that became unrighteous. They're the only human beings that went that direction. You and I were born unrighteous until righteousness was imparted to you 
Right? We receive God's righteousness at the moment of salvation. Uh, God's righteousness is then credited to our account. So for you and I, if this verse was, was uh, composed to a human being uh, ever since Adam and Eve, then the human being would have to be you were uh, depraved, you were uh, sinful, you were in darkness, separated from God from the day you were born until righteousness was credited to your account through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only direction a human being can go. But this passage describes a creature sinless and perfect, and yet unrighteousness then was generated. And it was generated internally. And all the mechanics of this are here. Uh, It began with pride in the heart. And uh, it began, uh, he corrupted his wisdom by reason of his splendor. And with corrupted wisdom, he then went forth in insanity into uh, the angelic rebellion. Anyway, it's not a human being in view there anyway. It's a cherub. And the cherub was Satan. And of all the cherubim and of all the seraphim and of all the myriads of myriads of rulers and authorities, principalities and powers, here is one instance where an angelic being, a spirit realm being, is called anointed, is called Christ. He is the Messiah cherub. And he has that function. His function was to guard a chair. And instead of guarding it, he lusted for it. It was not his. To which of the angels did he say, sit at my right hand? To none of them. Certainly not to Satan. That chair was reserved for Christ in his glory. But Lucifer, if you want to call him by his Latin name, or Halel ben Shachar, Satan lusted after it and uh, rebelled. All right. So the term is Mashiach. In Greek, the term is Christos. Christos. Again, Christ is not a a translation, it's a transliteration. Christos. C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S. Christos. That's why a lot of times you just see it abbreviated with the chi. The Greek letter chi looks like a great big English letter X. It's not an English letter X. And uh, people that talk about Xmas as that day in December are goofy. It's not an X, it's a chi in Greek. Looks like an English X. In any event, Christos. Christos. If you know anybody named Christopher, he's Christophoros, a Christ bearer. Somebody that bears the image of Christ is a Christophoros. And uh, Christos is a translation from Mashiach because Christos in the Greek means the same thing that Mashiach means in the Hebrew. The verb is Creo, and Creo means to smear. Creo means you're smearing with the anointing oil. And so a Christos is an anointed one, something that has been smeared, something that has been anointed, something that has been set apart. The idea of the anointing is that it's been consecrated, it's been set apart. It has been dedicated through the anointing oil, has been dedicated through the ritual as belonging to God for his purpose, for his pleasure. That's what sanctification is all about, what the anointing is all about. The anointing is simply the mark, the universal testimony that the sanctification is taking place. Is there, is there power bestowed on, you know, is there uh, some superpowers at work when oil gets smeared and no any more than with water baptism that there's mystical powers at work it is an outward symbol and sign and recognition that this anointed one has been set apart sanctified for the father's purpose for the father's good pleasure 
Christos is number 5547. The index numbers are different between uh, the Hebrew and Greek numbering system, but there you have it. Now, point D. Anointing was the action for the offices of prophet, priest, and king. Anointing was the action for the offices of prophet, priest, and king. Prophet is actually the hardest one to pinpoint, but we do find a clear example of it in Isaiah 61.1, and I think we find the example of it in the boyhood anointing of David. I believe that first boyhood anointing when Samuel came to Jesse's house, yes, he was identifying a king, but he was not vesting that king into office. He was still anointed, however. And I believe from that point forward, he received the Holy Spirit for the rest of his life, and that he was in the uh, prophetic office years before he ever entered into the king, kingly office. There, there were also things which we could be anointed. And I didn't put that on the, on the board, but you should be familiar with the temple and the tabernacle, the pieces, the furnishings in the tabernacle. They were all anointed. The, uh, the bronze altar had to be anointed. The silver laver had to be anointed. The table of showbread, the candlestick, the altar of incense, the, uh, the tent itself. Everything received a smearing. Everything received the anointing. But in terms of people now, these offices received anointings. Prophet, priest, and king. Isaiah 61.1 For prophet. 1 Samuel 2.35 For priest. And Second uh, Samuel 22:51 and 23:1 for king. These are the clearest examples I think that we can come up with. Isaiah 61:1. The words are the words of Isaiah, and they are true in his day, but they also became the words of Jesus Christ. That uh, will be will find fulfillment in First Advent and Second Advent. But we read, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Spirit of Adonai Jehovah, Adonai Yahweh. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because Jehovah, the Lord, has anointed me. And what is his assignment? To bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and freedom to prisoners. Now this was... Isaiah's ministry as a prophet, looking ahead to the coming Christ, but ultimately this is the ministry of the Christ. And every anointed prophet was a picture of the anointed one. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. To proclaim how it is going to come at some future point of time. And the day of vengeance of our God. Again, it's going to come at some appointed future time. And every prophet spoke of first advent and second advent to uh, and the day of vengeance of our god to comfort all who mourn to grant those who mourn in zion giving them a garland instead of ashes the oil of gladness instead of mourning the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting and isaiah had to minister in a day when the northern tribes are swept away and the southern tribes are afraid they're going to be too and you know what? Instead of all this mourning, you could have divine viewpoint. You could view your circumstances and details of life with divine viewpoint and have gladness, mental attitude, peace, and stability in your thinking. So they will be called oaks of righteousness. Um, 
Pastor Eichmann, a pastor I know, is working on concepts of rewards and rewards. The ones we're most familiar with are the church age rewards, the crown of righteousness, crown of life, the, the, those that are described in the epistles as rewards for New Testament believers, for church age saints. But there are also classification and categories of reward for Old Testament saints as well, for dispensation of Gentile believers like Job and Enoch and Noah, great heroes there, uh, and dispensation of Israel believers. And here is a title. A title, I believe, is a reward concept for believers, faithful believers in the dispensation of Israel. They will be called Oaks of Righteousness. How about that? As a eternal reward for faithful overcoming believers in, uh, in the dispensation of Israel. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They will, then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. And of course this looks ahead to uh, messianic uh, millennial blessings that are coming up for the nation of Israel. But we see the anointing of a prophet. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Lord has anointed me. And Isaiah is speaking here of his own anointing, of his own prophetic office. And uh, the, the role of the prophets was to uh, proclaim the coming Christ. Christ came, actually, and got to proclaim the reality. And he cited this very verse here in Luke 4. And he said it was fulfilled, but he deliberately stopped. He said, uh, I am the anointed one. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom of the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he stopped right there in the middle of Isaiah 61.2. He stopped. He did not read the part about uh, the day of vengeance of our God. That's second half it. He stopped right there in the middle of verse 2. Rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, took his seat. And everyone was just kind of, that was a short message. you know. <laughs> why did he... Why did he read a verse in the third? Why did he stop there? And he sat down and he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. And far greater than Isaiah who said, These days are coming. Jesus Christ said, It's here. At least first advent is here. Alright, we see the priesthood anointing all throughout Leviticus, all throughout Exodus, when Aaron and his sons and all of that. But the scripture we have here in 1 Samuel 2.35 actually uses the term Mashach and Mashiach, 1 Samuel 2.35. And, um, of course, Eli, Eli himself wasn't all that bad, but he tolerated his two sons. And these two sons were nightmares. And uh, we, had, in fact, had a Bible study on them in our last teen class, Hophni and Phinehas, different Phinehas from the one you like. And uh, these guys were wicked. And so here comes a sign. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, on the same day both of them will die. And you will observe that sign and then you'll fall off your own donkey. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. He will walk before my anointed always. Now, there's the question. Who is he talking about? Is he talking about Jesus? Is he talking about a different priest? Because if my anointed is Jesus, then who is this faithful priest? 
or if my anointed is David, then who is his faithful priest? All right. And uh, there's reason to debate that from an Old Testament theology standpoint. There's reason to debate that from a New Testament theology standpoint. Uh, in the life of David, Zadok was the faithful priest. Prophetically speaking, of course, the Zadokite line is going to be featured in the Millennial Kingdom. And then ultimately, Christ is both priest and king. The two offices will be united in one person. All right. Anyway, you see the anointed there. In 2 Samuel 22 and in 2 Samuel 23, we have the uh, aspect of kings being anointed. There's many places you can look for this, but I like these because they're back to back. And I just like the story. Um, 2251 and 231. We already saw 23.1 with reference to David in one of his titles. But it does come back to back. The um, So much of this, but I'll just bring to your attention this morning, verse 45. Uh, because he had victory everywhere he went. He was the conquering king. I like the term pulverized in verse 43. Um, I pulverized them as the dust of the earth. I crushed and stamped them as the mire of the streets. This is a foreshadowing, of course. Jesus Christ will ultimately pulverize the planet at second advent. You have also delivered me from the contentions of my people. Bad enough, you got the enemies from without. Here's the traitors from within. You have kept me as head of the nations. A people whom I have not known serve me. Foreigners pretend obedience to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. But you'll note, it's a sham. They're putting on a show. And the first chance they get, they're going to rebel. They start to under Solomon, and then it really runs havoc under Rehoboam and Jeroboam when the kingdom gets split. The, uh, the pretend obedience uh, is exposed. Understand that that is foreshadowing, looking ahead to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, where he rules with a rod of iron. And throughout that thousand years, under the surface, under the covers, there is feigned obedience. They act like they're obeying. They may make a show of appearing for the Feast of Tabernacles. They'll even cover for one another when one of them takes a stand and boycotts the uh, Feast of Tabernacles and they get their rain shut off. The kings of the earth devise a vain thing. And they plot and they scheme and they feign obedience. And when their champion is released, when Satan is released for the Gog-Magog rebellion, they rebel. And so we see foreshadowings of it here in 2 Samuel 22. But you will note that God is the one who executes vengeance. Just as it's the Father who sends down fire to destroy Gog-Magog at the uh, foot of Jesus Christ's throne there in Jerusalem. And so he says, therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations, and I will sing praises to your name. He is a tower of deliverance or salvation to his king. He shows loving kindness, chesed, to his Messiah, to his anointed one, to David and his descendants forever. Kings were anointed. That's why David would not lift his hand against Saul, even when he had the chance. Even when he's hiding in the cave and Saul runs in there to use the bathroom. And David literally, literally caught him with his pants down. 
and he wouldn't touch him. He would not touch him. Why? I will not lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. That's for God to deal with. Absolutely, that's for God to deal with. See, in a local church context, there's believers that think it's their purpose in life to, uh, to uh, correct the pastor. Right to uh, to uh, straighten out the pastor and, and all his faults, everything he's doing wrong. All right. Don't get me wrong. Pastors are, are believer priests, equal to the, any other believer in the flock, subject to church discipline, subject to a rebuke. Don't get me wrong. But when it comes to actually the hand of discipline and correction that's going to remedy that, Jesus Christ takes care of that. Ezekiel thirty-four is very clear. The good shepherd does not tolerate. The phonies. And he deals with it much better than uh, than a committee might do. So if you want to add those other texts there in First uh, Samuel and in Second Samuel, you can get to them pretty pretty simply. First uh, Samuel, you can spot it in um, 24, I want to say. Yeah. First Samuel 24, where he's hiding in the cave. And he says, you know what? I could do this. But in 24.6, after he cut off the robe, he felt uh, his conscience was bothering him. He cut off the little hem of the robe and he says, you know what? I'm not even comfortable with that. Because it was the Lord's anointed. He said, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. And he felt bad about cutting off the hem of the robe. He says, I'm, I'm approaching some dangerous territory here. Now, I personally don't think he did anything wrong. I think he proved his genuine heart. He proved his obedience. He, he proved his loyalty. But his conscience was not uh, was not clear with that. He had an appreciation for the Messiah doctrine. And then so you see it again at the end of 1 Samuel, the first chapter of 2 Samuel. Saul dies in the last chapter of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 31. Falls on his sword. And then, because uh, his armor bearer won't do it. And then uh, in the first chapter of 2 Samuel, this mercenary renegade tries to go and collect a reward he thinks hey i can i can earn some favor with david here and so he runs to report things to david and he wants the reward and uh david wants to know well how did how did you escape what's going on and the man reported all these things and he's going to try to get a reward here this amalekite and um and it's interesting in in he reports, he's making up this whole story. It's not true because we know what really happened. Uh, scripture records what happened. But he claims that uh, Saul wanted him to kill him and not allow him to be captured by the Philistines. And so he says that he did. He says that he did. And it's interesting is that David uh, asks him in verse 14 of Second Samuel 1, David said to him, How is it you are not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? This man thought he was going to get a reward. Saying, look, look, I killed your, your adversary. Now you can be king. And thanks to me, of course, right? <laughs> you know, oh, shucks, you know. Whatever reward you want to bestow, I'd be glad to take it. You know, I'm your man. I killed, I killed the old king. Now you can be king. And from human viewpoint, yeah, you know, a kingmaker could be very rewarded in the ancient world. In modern times, political advisors get a, a lot of... Uh, 
perks and, and benefits for uh, successfully advising a political person. So here he wants his reward. He gets a reward. He says, how is it you uh, were not afraid to stretch out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of his young men and said, go cut him down. He struck him and he died. So there's your reward, right? Pastors don't have that. I don't have an executioner on staff where I just point and say, you know, go cut him down. And I don't say such things wistfully either. I just, no, that was an Old Testament economy in a king context where the power of the sword was indeed entrusted to the king. All right. Anyway, all of these are, are uh, Messiah concepts. As we understand the anticipation now, the anticipated Messiah was understood to be a king, the son of David. The anticipated Messiah was understood to be a king, the son of David. And somewhere along the way, this became everything to the Jewish people. This became the totality and everything. And the concept of the son of the woman, the concept of the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head, the concept of a kinsman redeemer delivering out of the slave market of sin, those were diminished and forgotten and ignored. Because what really got them jazzed up and excited was, we got the king, and he's our king, and the Jews are going to win, and we have dominion over the Gentiles. That took center stage. And any other concept in terms of the Messiah started to pale. Psalm 72, the whole psalm is a celebration. The whole psalm, Psalm 72. Take a look at it. We're running up against the top of our hour here. And Psalm 72 is a psalm of Solomon. Now think about it. The anointed son of David. Writing a psalm about the anointed son of David. The greater son of David. The ultimate son of David. That is Jesus Christ. But who better to write this than Solomon? The anointed son of David. And so... Oh, there's so many blessings with respect to this. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. I believe Solomon composed this together with David uh, on the uh, that night where... Uh, David officially vested him as the uh, successor because it's introduced in the prescript as a song of Solomon but it, in verse 20 we're told that this is the conclusion of book 2 in the, Psal- in the Psalter that the prayers of David the son of Jesse are ended. I think this had a dual authorship in terms of Solomon and David both. They composed this together. In all likelihood this was David's final composition and Solomon's first. And that uh, short time on David's deathbed when the Young virgin was trying to keep him warm, and they were trying to keep him alive long enough to uh, to uh, solidify the succession of the throne. But you'll note um, 
the uh, the ruling here. Let them fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. Everybody trying to uh, destroy the Jewish people, forget about it. You know, go ahead and start by trying to destroy the moon. Because as long as the moon's up there, and there's another passage in Isaiah that talks about as long as the sun and the moon are both up there, give up trying to destroy Israel. May he rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And there's so, so much there. Does it bother you that in the 19th century, the United States of America viewed the sea to shining sea passage of Scripture as a mandate defining the manifest destiny of the United States of America as God's covenant nation on this earth? Does that bother you at all? You wonder what the state of theology was in our nation at that time? And how insipid replacement theology is? (laughs) Our nation did, indeed. Yes, we did. We stretched from sea to sea. Well, how about that? And that's, you know, I grew up on that left coast, so that's, you know... Manifest destiny hadn't happened, then uh, who knows what my nationality would have been. But this is not the United States of America in this passage. Jesus Christ is going to rule and fulfill every messianic expectation for Israel and for all of humanity when it comes right down to it. All right, there's more. I'm out of time. Um, Again, you'll notice as, uh, as the sun shines in verse 17. You want to destroy Israel? Put out the sun first and then you might have a chance. All of these tyrants and dictators, uh, Hitler and the Nazis and everybody, the Muslims, everyone that's ever tried to exterminate the Jewish people, Pharaoh, killing every firstborn, every, every male child, and everybody that's ever tried to exterminate the Jewish people, you can't do it. Because God has made eternal promises to Israel and they will be fulfilled. God's not a liar. Try to put out the sun. Try to destroy the moon. You will not thwart his plan for Israel, for his Christ. There were other expectations as well, but we will have to hold off until next week to deal with that. And then we'll get into the blessed are you, Simon Barjona, and the wonderful privilege of being taught by God the Father. Pretty unusual in the Old Testament, but pretty normal for you and I. Because God the Father has supplied us with the Holy Spirit and God the Father has supplied us with our anointing in Christ and God the Father is our teacher as church age believers. And uh, we will deal with that and then we will look at the church. On this rock I will build my church. We'll have that. We'll deal with that next week. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for all of the teaching with respect to Messiah, with respect to anointing. That our anointing is for the purpose of the one who anointed us. We understand none of us are going to bear the sin of humanity. None of us are going to go to the cross. None of us are going to reconcile mankind to yourself. And yet we do have an anointing. And our anointing accomplishes your purpose. So I pray that we would come to appreciate our anointing in Christ. I pray we would come to appreciate what our role is as uh, servants of a new covenant. And to understand what our role is as the stewards of your truth. Uh, Help us to shine our light brighter in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.